This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And what's brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Superhero Horror. Dallas Zoo Thefts. Science Fiction Cinema of the Early 60s. And the Enju Beach Egg. In Sunset City, there's always something fishy going on, and we're not talking tuna. Normally, good neighbors are suddenly stealing jewels, kidnapping kitties, and blackmailing the mayor. The magical kitties of Sunset City have their paws full. That's why they've formed the Cat Eyes Detective Agency. Because even though human detectives are pretty good at their jobs, sometimes it takes magic to uncover what's really going on in this town. Magical kitties save the day is the family favorite role-playing game for all ages. I am so excited about this, I have to break character. <laughs> you know I love cats and noir. Atlas Games adds mystery and intrigue to your game with the Kitty Noir hometown. Are there scritches? Do the cats get scritches? Kitty Noir has players explore a whole new detective series or throw in a mystery that any visiting kitty can uncover. Okay, but is it really noir? Kitty Noir takes its inspiration from classic film noir and crime movies from the 1930s to the 1950s and from Golden Age science fiction stories of time travel. Someone has frozen the city in time, inside a magical bubble, and they don't want anyone to know about it. And it's coming to Kickstarter on March 28th, you say? You said that, but you are correct. Hmm, are there any other new magical kitty treats I can add to my collection? Well, there's the new Game Master Kit, too. Yeah, it's got a sturdy GM screen, plus a handy poster of kitty breeds to help you pick your perfect kitty character. Don't you mean my perfect kitty character? Uh, if you keep that up, I won't mention the full-size poster map of Sunset City. Find Magical Kitties Noir on Kickstarter from March 28th to April 27th, 2023. Learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut, where we have uh, here on the table, Robin, that great, some would say the greatest game of the early 80s. I speak, of course, of Call of Champions, <laughs> or is it? Champ Thulhu. I'm not yes. sure. It's really weird to roll 27 six-siders to get number between 1 and 100. A percentile die number. That's messed up. Yeah. But, you know, that's how we did things in the 80s, Robin. We weren't mollycoddled in the way that people are now. Yeah. We had to walk six miles through the snow for our experience points. Exactly. Uphill both ways. And at the end of that uh, six miles, we would find excellent questions such as those from Patreon backer Sean, who asks... Hearing that Ken is running a superheroes game made me wonder whether the potential exists to meld that genre with horror. Robin started down this path with his Death Laughs last scenario in Stunning Eldritch Tales, but that is a spin on pulp heroes. Can and should one mix one's costumed crusaders with one's cosmic horror, Robin? Well, there's uh, obviously so, because there's actually a, a ton of existing source material to draw from, right? That both Marvel and DC have horror traditions that intersect and intermingle with their superheroes. 
Most notably, there's the Justice League Dark series. Mm-hmm. But of course, having magic heroes is a big part of DC and was before then. Sandman is full of interconnections to uh, the broader superhero universe, as famously as there's a cool swamp thing that does the same thing. And so that's already there, right for the uh, right for the picking. It's already a thing. So how do we do that thing better? And I guess mostly it's a matter of taking a slice of either an existing superhero universe or the superhero universe that you've invented that sort of takes its stylistic cues from one of those. I mean, both Marvel and DC even have their own versions of the mythos lurking around. So this is all just about picking parts that already exist and, and assembling them together. Yes, I did something of that in my own book, Adventures into Darkness, which was, I think still is, the nerdiest thing I've ever produced, being a role-playing source book from the parallel history in which H.P. Lovecraft wrote superhero comics. And what I did was basically exactly what you said. I took the pre-existing Nidor Comics universe, a beloved public domain universe now, Ned Pines having not paid the $9 or whatever it cost to re-up his copyrights in the 50s. And it was fundamentally an expression of how do you put Lovecraftian horror into Golden Age comics specifically, because I was using the Nidor heroes. Your examples are all, you know, post-Bronze Age, whatever age we're in now, Platinum, I guess, is what they call it. And, of course, depending on the tone of your superhero universe, you can go all manner of different directions with it. Uh, the Golden Age has sort of got a a brutal, casual attitude that I think meshes well with some tones of horror. Silver is, of course, famously the beautiful and the pointless, as Alan Moore said, so you can definitely wire in certainly a Dunzanian take on uh, Lovecraft into that, but you could, I think, add any number of, of ridiculous things. And As a matter of fact, the Necronomicon shows up in the Silver Age, used by Felix Faust to summon the Demons 3, the demons that existed on Earth before there was anything else. So Right, because, of course, all the comics writers were big conversant with, if not yeah. actually writing for the pulps, and were, you know, knew their Lovecraft and knew their horror. Right, yeah. Gardner Fox was, you know, a, an absolutely a Lovecraft fan and would work it in whenever he could. Then, you know, in the sort of self-serious, we all have to figure out all our rivets and continuities, Bronze Age, maybe you lose a little of the ability to work it in. But also, the Bronze Age is when we stop trying to tell stories of good and evil and start trying to tell sort of messier human stories. And of course, as Ramsey Campbell has demonstrated, those work great with the Cthulhu mythos. The stories of human failure and frailty, you know, can lead into the mythos just like any other kind of, of story can. So really, it's, it's, uh, you're, you're spoiled for choice. I would recommend looking at Adventures in a Darkness, not least because I sort of, you know, broke down the the common thematic elements between Golden Age comics and cosmic horror. But uh, Ken, where would one find Adventures into Darkness? Because surely one will wish to find and purchase it if it's not already on one's digital or literal shelf. One could easily find it on the Atomic Overmind Press web store, where its beloved publisher keeps it in print for Hero, Fate, and I believe PDQ. And Mutants and Masterminds. I believe there's also right. a Mutants and Masterminds version. So, and, and if you don't play any of those four things, you can. that's enough by, to go on. By now, translate. you can translate into whatever you are playing, certainly. Yeah. Yes. So I guess, since you've already done the work, why don't I just ask you about it? How would you set up the initial scenario? In the, like, if, if you were to recommend to someone, I, I'm, I don't know which 
era of comics I want to emulate. I want to do the one that works best with that. Is it Golden Age that you want me to do? So pick me my flavor of comic and then tell me what my session zero is going to look like. I think your session zero in a Golden Age, and Adventures in the Darkness is Golden Age, is the, you know, bog standard, Hitler's up to something. There's some sort of crazy, mad scientist looking guy, and he's got, you know, some weird ability, and you can go into it and you think, is it weird science? Is it weird magic? Could be anything. And when you start taking it down, you discover that he has... So, so in fact, in, in true Golden Age style, you don't have a session zero. You just start with session right. one. Right, yeah, you just start, right? You're diving right in. So what are your heroes like? Your heroes, well, uh, they can either be the existing Nidor heroes or they can be your own version of the heroes. I think it works just as well. I, frankly, in the Golden Age, having a weird cosmic level hero like Nidor's Mystico or DC's Spectre, I think it actually opens up the door to cosmic horror in a way that starting with a, a lower level hero like Batman or the Black Terror might not. Although, again, Batman or the Black Terror, Batman definitely has crossed over with a mythos already. And the Black Terror can do basically the same thing, just bulletproof. So the the notion basically is that whoever your your, your bad guy working for the Axis is, he's got a magic book. He's got the Necronomicon. He's got, you know, nameless cults, or he's got the shining trapezohedron or a resonator, some piece of mythos gear that opens up either he's opened up a rift and all the Cthulhu monsters are coming out to mess with, you know, your home setting, or he's got some sort of deal done with the deep ones or with the Mego or, or whatever sort of larger bad you want to make uh, thematically part of your universe immediately. I think deep ones work a little better for the golden age, but certainly you could do Mego. There's, uh, they didn't know what the rules were yet. So they didn't know that flying crustacean insects from Pluto messed with those rules. In fact, I, as I say those out loud, they don't actually mess with the rules. They're perfectly in keeping with golden age vibe. And then, you know, you beat him up, you uh, throw him off a cliff or whatever you do in the golden age and you stop the immediate threat, but you realize there's a bigger threat going on. Maybe we need to look into, you know, where he got this knowledge. Did he get it from, you know, Nazi Germany? Is uh, the Ananerba working on something? Did he, you know, come up, up with it out of his bizarrely shaped head? Is he an alien? Are there, you know, other things going on? And then you can just chase it down in the sort of standard superheroic way. If you just stumbled on Hydra or Cobra or one of the other bad guy organizations, instead, you've just stumbled on the Deep Ones, or the uh, Nazi Mythos program, whichever you'd uh, rather fight, mostly. So, I think the one thing that I would want to get buy-in from my players, or rather pull my players on before mm -hmm. starting this, is there's two tonal areas that you can lean toward in this. Mm -hmm. One is that all of these heroic characters, although, as you point out, even Golden Age characters already have a little bit of darkness in them, mm -hmm. are then horribly shredded by their confrontation with the mythos that they are much smaller than the mythos and are uh, so it's heroes you know go insane and go to the dark side in other words a horror leaning version of this to do you want to play a more comic book version of this where it's rip roaring comic book thrills where the thing that you are fighting is rugos right? right and i think that is an expectations thing that you might lean into as a gm and try and put your you know, your finger on the scale and, and get one or the other. But I think your players are going to want to know which tone they're actually 
going toward. And I would guess probably a lot of them would want to do the more heroic version, but uh, I could be wrong on that. And uh, the thing about it is that the heroic version is not unlovecraftian. You're just doing Charles Dexter Ward and the Shunned House and the Dunwich Horror instead of Whisper in Darkness, right? You've got, there are a number of Lovecraft stories in which the heroes absolutely stop the monster and you can be superheroes and absolutely stop the monster. And you could argue, yes, the monsters have, you know, a, a a fear aura or something that only superheroes can fight. That's why Batman has to take on these things instead of the cops is because the cops all succumb to the fear aura and run away. But Batman is Batman. And so he's not going to, you know, he'll maybe be at a minus two or something because of the fear aura, but it's not going to, you know, send him fleeing for the hills. Uh, the way that it would uh, a non-Batman type guy. And again, if you're if you're worried about uh, the inherent Nietzscheanism of your genre, maybe superheroes are not for you. But I feel like that's a good way to sort of have your cake and eat it too in that sort of more, as you say, a heroic tenor of, uh, of, of cosmic horror gaming. I mean, if you are amplifying the cosmic, then you are going to want to do what you said, have uh, as the first example have the heroes be shredded or changed by it. And one fun thing you can do with that is you run your golden age campaign for a bit where the heroes have been shredded and changed. Uh, their fight against the mythos has led them to using the mythos and, and learning how it works. Smash cut to the modern age where planetary style, you're uncovering the dark secrets of the superheroic past and you're perfectly normal superheroes and you, you know, drink your aloe sun or take your miraculous pills to fight crime. But, as you investigate, you're like, oh, this came from Pluto, this stuff that I'm doing. Superheroic legacies are all mythos legacies. Namor wasn't from Atlantis. He was from real, yeah. And me being his heir is now weird and problematic. And it becomes a, uh, you know, a, a very uh, Bronze or Iron Age game where you're unpacking the legacy code of the old seemingly simple super universe. And if you wanted to play that kind of game, I think having a mythos gives you a superb backstory and past to uncover that isn't the sort of, oh, they were all working for the Nazis stuff from the boys, which is fun and fine. But, you know, it loses its uh, its heat after serial revelations because it's always the same revelation. The thing I would be tempted to do as sort of the story arc would be to do the DC universe, do, you know, Justice Society and Superman is an NPC. And the whole arc turns out to be that Batman and the rest of the group, but Batman discovers <laughs> that what's going on is that Nyarlathotep wishes to corrupt Superman. He has all of the, uh, the mythic power of uh, a, a demigod working on his way toward godhood. You know, maybe there's some tentacles in Krypton and Nyarlathotep wishes to turn uh, Superman to the dark side and, and make him the, uh, the one who eventually goes down and perhaps with the help of, of Aquaman as well. Aquaman isn't uh, society though. Is there a fishy? Well, Aquaman was in the forties. He was just never in the justice society. Okay. So you can have golden age Aquaman sort of off, uh, off, off screen. So yeah. the whole scheme ultimately of Nyarlathotep is to have Superman dive down into the Pacific and physically bring up Rilia mm -hmm. and your job as Batman and the others is to uh, prevent that from, uh, happening. So you have to protect the sunny optimism of Superman, you know, keep sending him off on a mission in space mm -hmm. when 
when things go bad because you do not want him, you know, realizing what the true meaning of being an heir of Krypton is. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, having, you know, Superman's home planet be destroyed by his, you know, that's the secret. He was destroyed by Jor-El to keep it from being, you know, subsumed by a mythos entity. And that's, you know, why he's, you know, knew about it in time to send his son off on the rocket ship. That would be a fun twist. Also, if you don't want to mess with Superman or you want to play the more golden age Superman who couldn't fly yet and was just bouncing over buildings and stopping trains, the Spectre makes an excellent character who had the power to raise Rilia because he had the power to do anything. And he's Siegel and Shuster's other creation. So he's still got the mythic weight, I think. And it becomes then a little harder for you to keep the specter, you know, on side. And it may be as is a little reinforcement for why you should do good because the specter exists as a moral judge. And you are sort of, in a way, the good people, the Sadakim, the, the, the justice Sadakim of America, keeping the specter from saying, oh, you know what? No, your type is right. The Aeon should end. I'm going to stop the world now. I'm sure God would approve. And so your goodness is actually part of what keeps the specter from giving in to Nerothotep's blandishments. Right. So instead of losing sanity, as you would in Call of Cthulhu, mm-hmm. you lose moral compass. Right. And if too many of you lose too many moral compass points, the specter goes up. Oh, well, I guess that's how it goes. Gotta, mm-hmm. gotta let Cthulhu cleanse this place before it gets any worse. Well, as a rule, when Cthulhu is beginning to rise again, we don't want that to happen in the middle of this podcast. Not even really in the final segment. No. So it's time for us to exit this segment and head to a completely Cthulhu-free segment. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. They can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. The very newest stories are coming at us all the time, and we're going to rip them from the headlines for a segment we call Ripped from the Headlines. And then this time, beloved Patreon backer Cine Strategus asks, how do we use the Dallas Zoo break-ins in a game? And so, Ken, this indeed is a, a story in the news, or a, a, a series of attempts to free or kidnap animals from the Dallas Zoo. A suspect has been uh, apprehended and, in fact, confessed and, in fact, said that he will do it again if freed. Uh So I I guess we should get to the unfun part of this for starters, which is that you can clearly see reading the news story that this is a case of an animal hoarder who has gone off to try and take exotic animals. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is one of the really worst 
forms of OCD, uh, which is a much more serious mental illness than we necessarily uh, credit it as. And so there is a dark, sad part of this story. But yeah. again, part of taking things from the headlines yeah. or nerd troping things at all is to try and find a way to achieve sort of distance and power over the real horrors of the world by turning them into genre nonsense and fun horrors. And that's what we're going to do for the rest of the segment. So, Ken, you've got some more on-the-ground details yeah. of all of this uh, attempted animal liberation. Right. Yeah. The the Dallas Zoo, apparently there's this fellow that has been arrested and is the sort of center of a lot of it. For example, in January 13th, a clouded leopard named Nova uh, escaped from her cage. Her cage was cut open and she escaped and the zoo shut everything down and they sent, you know, infrared probes and, and drones in to look for Nova. And they found Nova elsewhere in the zoo, just hanging much like when Virgil goes missing. And it's like, Oh, he was just up on the futon sleeping on the knitting. That's what he was doing. Yeah. A lot of zoo animals go, I'm not leaving where the food is. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, I don't want necessarily to be in the cage, but I don't, I don't want to be in Dallas, which frankly I get. It, so the, uh, matches. they investigated, they found a similar cut on the Langer monkey cage, but all the Langers were still in the cage. They being even smarter than Nova said, yeah, we're not going with you, pal. Yeah. They, they were, dare we say it, Langerous. Lang exactly. And so that sort of began a bit of a, a kerfuffle at the zoo. And then on the 21st, one of the lappet-faced vultures, they had three, named Pin, who was 35 years old, was found dead, and they thought that was bad, and they did a, a, a necropsy, as they call it. I guess it's only an autopsy if it's on a people, but I would have called it an autopsy. They checked it up, and it turns out Pin was dead of a wound and was killed. And I should say that whoever killed Pin violated federal law because... Pin is an endangered vulture, and so U.S. Fish and Wildlife gets dragged into it at this point. And the guy who's confessed to letting Nova free and abducting later monkeys, which we'll get to, is not been connected to the Pin vulture killing. So there could be another thing going on. But anyway, they doubled their security at night. They expanded their camera coverage. They already had 100 cameras for their 106-acre zoo. Then they offered a big reward. But that did nothing because on the 29th, Two Emperor Tamarin monkeys, Bella and Finn, were in fact abducted from the zoo after their habitat was broken into. And the zoo, with all these cameras, I guess, had a picture of the guy who was asking questions about, if I had a Tamarin monkey or two, how could I get them somewhere? Do they, do they ride in cars? And, you know, that's how they found the guy. And he was picked up asking suspicious questions at the Dallas World Aquarium. So there we are. Right. Uh, about their monkeys. Yes. Do you, why don't you have monkeys? What's wrong with you? No, they did have monkeys. They, did they have monkeys? Yeah. I thought it was uh, trying to steal fish because they found a bunch of dead fish in the apartment. Not the apartment. It was an empty house. News reports can be wrong. Mm -hmm. The one I read said that he was asking about their monkeys. Their monkeys. aquariums do often have other wild animals. Well, all right. The, and again, Dallas being Dallas, who can say what they have? The larger point being that the monkeys were found in an empty house in Lancaster, Texas, that was owned by the suspect's church. And that's why everyone knew him. They said, oh, that's the guy at church. And that's where the case stands. I, I have not seen any cases of further uh, zoo pestering in Dallas, although there is a similar case of a bunch of spider monkeys that were stolen from Louisiana that have not been recovered, although they arrested the guy who did it. So the spider monkeys have vanished. Right. And of course, there's Flacco, the hero owl 
who has escaped the Bronx Zoo and is hanging out in Central Park feasting on the rodents there. Right. Yes. Well, that's that's a different question. That's a self-liberating Right. Yeah. And uh, we encourage Flacco. This uh, podcast stands with Flacco and free Flacco. Hashtag. So the part about putting this into a game, I I think we want to make sure that it is pretty fanciful to Mm -hmm. get away from the the darker mental illness issues involved here. And can I I have a a definitely not, a could be, but a definitely not. And then what's actually going on. So I'm going to start with this could be like an exoterror op, right? That they mm-hmm. uh, begin, that's the sort of thing they do. If someone is breaking into a zoo, uh, that they would then send operatives to break uh, progressively more dangerous animals out and sort of create a sense of panic. And this would enable more of the zoological outer dark entities mm-hmm. to finally start escaping through the, the breach right. between they're, worlds. They're trying to open up for like an outer dark chimera or manticore or something. And the way to do it is to get people really scared of the tiger at the zoo. Right. So that would be uh, the thing that I don't think is happening. What would your first theory be? Well, my first theory is, and again, maybe this is just you know where I go. But if people are messing around in zoos, uh, this takes me back to good old Dracula, right? He was messing around in the zoo, talking to the wolf at the London Zoo so that it could run and smash open uh, Lucy Westenra's house. So I feel like you've got some sort of vampire who is sneaking into the zoo and uh, maybe the vulture, like, you know, noticed him and he couldn't have him ratting on him to other vampires. And that's what happened to the vulture. But I, I just feel like you've got a, a vampire situation going on. And, and admittedly, I'm not sure how many vampires use monkeys as their familiar animal or their whatever, but it could be interesting. I don't know if it's fun, question mark. Uh, I guess it's how scary do you want to make a monkey? And, you know, people have made monkeys scary. I think, didn't Cronenberg have a scary monkey movie? Right. And of course, 30s horror is full of the apes and gorillas as, mm-hmm. as legit objects of horror. Yeah. Um, so, so what's really going on, of course, is why would people be drawn to free monkeys? Well, obviously, it's the monkeys drawing them in using their psychic powers because mm-hmm. they want to be freed. And obviously, the Dallas Zoo has not on display because that would be a real problem. The monkey who really wants someone to come and, and free it. And of course this would be gorilla grod right now. He of course is well known as a supervillain with great psychic powers. How did gorilla grod get into our universe? Well, of course he's a flash villain. Mm-hmm. Flash notoriously is the superhero who does the uh, most destruction to the boundaries between worlds. I suppose if you want to link these things, no, nah, never mind. Don't yeah. do that. Don't don't have the outer dark. Brain Stop flash. linking That's things. Stupid. Yeah. But uh, obviously, Gorilla Grodd has uh, you know been dumped by the Speed Force into our universe and is trying to draw people in to free it. And so possibly, I guess the scenario is you're being you know drawn in as sort of everyday investigators, or you the squad from the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, and then you know slowly more and more, if the DC heroes and villains start to show up, and this is your basically a prelude to your inbreak from worlds where DC characters start to leak into our universe. Uh, perhaps the lesser DC characters are the ones who, uh, you know, are tired of being smacked around by Batman or whatever. There's this now this breach between universes in Dallas. Right. And, uh, you know, even that if- it's only C-list villains know about and they're trying to keep it that way. And that's why they are trying to keep Gorilla Grodd in prison because he's the psychic link that lets them sneak into our universe. 
Because otherwise you'd think it's the Dallas Zoo. How hard could it be for Gorilla Grodd to get out? But that's, you know, uh, hit a whammy by the mind master or, 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 or the parasite or somebody. And so he's not able to use his full Gorilla Grodd powers. He's sort of a la Cthulhu sleeping and dreaming and drawing maybe unsettled individuals to the zoo in a subconscious attempt to create a prison break, but also all around the zoo, these sort of C-list DC supervillains are sneaking into our world and it could be a sort of existential horror campaign. It could be an existential supers campaign. It could be a fun, you know, nature of reality type thing where you, you know, the clock king shows up and he's a doofus in the DC universe, but in our universe where no one has any superpowers, He's like, great, I'm, you know, I'm the one-eyed man, I can rule. And that becomes a thing. Right. And of course, Batman can't leave the regular DC core world. No. He's got to stick around. And so... uh, Also, you've got to be a villain to use the gate, probably. Right. Well, but they know that people on this side of the world are going to need heroes. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's like, take up a collection. What kinds of DC heroism are exportable to others, right? So... Well, we can get a green lantern ring across mm-hmm. the, the barrier, across the gate. And what other things are sort of uh, powers that we can, you know, just anybody can pick up that we can send across the void for this team of U.S. fish and wildlife people to become the heroes of this world. And so, you know, yeah. your origin story is, so what What would you, uh, as the greater DC expert, <laughs> what other things would come across? I mean, I think a Legion flight ring is certainly the sort of thing that you would want to have. The uh, Gingold serum that, that Elongated Man uses to become Elongated Man originally, you know, you come up with some of that. Let's see, there's a Miraclo pills. I mentioned those. Our Man uses those to get superpowers uh, for an hour. I, I feel like you could have any number of these sort of and, and that would be part of the fun of it is it's it's this weird off brand collection of stuff. And right. I don't think there is a cyborg kit to recreate yeah. cyborg. Yeah. A cyborg could send like a nanobot that builds you into cyborg. You know, uh, the bracelets, Wonder Woman trained long and hard to use those bracelets. She became the champion of braceleting. But I'm sure that she could go to Athena and say, put some warrior magic on these bracelets and I'll send them through. And uh, the woman who picks them up will be able to channel Athena and use the bracelets at least. And then eventually we'll be able to power up to become a proper Wonder Woman of that world. Right. And if Grodd ever does, you know, fully break three, well, then Earth is in big trouble. Yeah. uh, You've got your big bad. And you also have a big hole in the world where now all the A-list villains can come through and, you know, Lex Luthor and, you know, whoever else, uh, Star Sapphire are all bursting through saying, okay, we got another Earth with no superheroes. Let's take it over before Superman gets back from his mission in space and shuts us all down. Well, now that we have a full campaign frame from a a bunch of uh, monkey thefts, it's time for us to head through this commercial and see what waits for us on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvageln on drive through Keep this podcast from running out of trench coats and ghost capes, along with such super horrific backers as... Tom Abella. Bill Serwin. Drew Clary. Jason Fritz. And Josh Borlase. The whir of the projector, the smell of fresh pop popcorn, and the feel of whatever that is under our feet as we make our way to the center aisle of the center seats and sit down in the cinema hut, where once more we are getting ready to continue our film festival of the science fiction cinema essentials. And I believe, Robin, we can give ourselves a hearty backslap because we have left the 1950s behind and we're beginning with the year... 1960. Yes, and what we're going to find is that the genre has now achieved enough of a sort of a cultural footprint that we're going to start to see it used in a more arty or avant-garde way, and we're going to see it largely move to uh, Europe for this little uh, while. But Ken, before we get to uh, Full Essential, uh, you want to give a shout out, uh, appropriately enough, to uh, The Time Machine from 1960, directed by George Powell. Yes, we, uh, you know, we, at Time Incorporated, we love this movie. We watch it, you know, at uh, the annual retreat, uh, which is literally the annual retreat. We take a year and we retreat it somewhere. It's a George Powell, which almost sells itself, which means it's uh, beautifully colored, gorgeous set decoration. I think that the weaknesses of this film are basically the weaknesses of the source novel in many ways, in that the source novel has a, a lot wrong with it as, as a, as a story. But, you know, Powell found the exciting part and kept it in. And the, uh, Eloy and Morlocks, I think the Morlocks have, are, are still pretty great in this movie. They're still pretty scary. The problem with taking only the good bits out of the time machine is you lose a lot of the sort of actual, a cosmic scientific horror speculation that Wells put in in the first place, but it is a it's a fun movie. It's sort of a a nod in a way, like a time machine to the the science fiction of the past, and it really does sort of I, I think act as a coda for that previous era when it was you know fusty nineteenth century novels and alien monsters that will bite your face, and then we are now moving out. I think as you say, not just into a broader understanding of the genre, but also into more people making it than just the, than just poor Jack Arnold and George Powell. <laughs> right. So we start to move into Europe to something that is, first of all, once again, uh, right at the intersection of science fiction and horror. And in this case is an A-list film based on an A-list science fiction novel. Uh, so it's John Wyndham's The Village of the Damned, directed by Wolf Rilla. So this is your archetypal scary kids infected with alienness and uh the uh, there's nothing more frightening than uh, giving children power and this does a, a really great dark thoughtful exploration of that that just goes beyond the uh, cheap thrills into really 
uh, working out the existential implications of that statement. Yeah, one of the one of the nice things about this movie is that it doesn't turn away from the sort of darkness at the core of the original Wyndham novel, The Midwitch Cuckoos, and it you know as the baby boom is is growing up the you know the silent generation filmmakers are panicking exactly the same way that baby boom filmmakers will panic when gen x appears and start making the omen this is the maybe the kids aren't all right maybe something is is bad that is happening so there's a bit of a prefiguring of the future the children are obviously this mutant species the hint is that they will just at some point, this mutation will take and, and replace us all. It's uh, it's a fear of the future, and it's also a a a very unflinching uh, science fiction movie. It it doesn't play it for camp or or, or jokes at all. It's 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 really a, a very very good movie. And of course, uh, any excuse to see George Sanders do something is, is is worth the price of admission alone. He plays the scientist who, of course first wants to study the children, then he wants to communicate with the children, and then he realizes, oh, that's why it's called the Village of the Damned. This is a bad situation. So Sanders gets to actually act in a meaty way. It's it's just a terrific arc. And speaking of Gen X, uh, Gen X Canadians will take special delight in the fact that later VJ and rock journalist Kim Clark Champness is uh, one of the uh, sinister kids in that film. Uh, now, next, Ken, you wanted to give a quick non-essential mention to a film from East Germany called The Silent Star by Kurt Meitzig from 1960. I just checked out the trailer, and I take it this is a, another in the uh, Woman on the Moon, Destination Moon lineage, but East German. Yeah, it's East German. They travel to Venus. They have a plan to find an, an alien society that dropped a ruin on Earth, so there's a bit of that you know, uh, ancient astronauts vibe. And, of course, the people of Venus are bad and are, are going to mess with us. The, the movie is, is not terrific. I, I think it got cut up and turned into an American movie called like first spaceship on Venus and is even worse than a lot of the fun of it is the East Germans saying there will be a, a multinational crew on space and they even have an American commander. But of course they get around it by saying we're a good socialist spaceship. This is after America has accepted communism. So it, it's not, you know, it ran into the East German censors because the censors don't understand subtlety or irony, but it's not a great movie, but I think it's an interesting movie. And it certainly indicates that behind the iron curtain, especially they are really taking science fiction seriously. And this is something that, was true in, you know, prose as well. Stanislav Lem, of course, was a towering figure in uh, Polish letters, but there was a real drive because of the materialist future orientation of science fiction to sort of adopt it as the native genre of communist film. And it never quite became it, but they made a lot of runs at it. And The Silent Star I think it's interesting, but it's not good, necessarily. Well, the next one on the list is a masterpiece, and a masterpiece not just of science fiction, but also of experimental film. Mm -hmm. So this is really the avant-garde and science fiction coming together for La Jetée, uh, directed by the American experimental filmmaker uh, Chris Marker in 1962. This is a time-travel, elegiac love story told through a, a series of still images. Uh, and so it all is almost sort of like a filmed photo comic and it is a short film it's not a full-length film because you couldn't of course put up with that for the entire length of a film but it is right. powerful for the way that it conveys emotion with such a limited palette of uh, visual tricks and uh, later this will be used 
as sort of the kernel of 12 monkeys, but mm-hmm. the marker thing on its own is something that anybody who wants to be conversant with science fiction film definitely has to check out. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, again, it, it cheats a little bit by being 28 minutes long, so it can pack more punch. Like in a it way, should be the length they're supposed to be. Right. But in the way that a good short story often hits you harder than a great novel, yeah. La Jete does that. And it's, it's also a good science fiction film straight up. It, it, you know, talks about causality and, and, and time loops in a, in a really interesting way. I think it's also the first good time loop movie. So in another way, it's a science fiction essential over and above its actual artistic merit. We're going to quickly mention the day of the Triffids by Steve Seckley from 1963. This is another John Wyndham adaptation and it's back to sort of the uh, the monstery side mm-hmm. of science fiction. And this time, the monsters are plants, because uh, as we know on this show, vegetables do not want to be eaten. Uh, and in this case, they decide to uh, come and eat some British people. Right, to take it back. Uh, for, a, for a novel as great and as seemingly visual as Day of the Triffids, no one has made a good movie of it yet. Steve Seckley, I guess, comes as close as anyone, but it's still a, a B picture and is really a throwback in a lot of ways to the 50s monster invader type movie. It may be better than the average of those, but it's still not an essential in any way. Unlike Ikari XB1, Czechoslovakian film directed by Jindrich Polak from the same year, 1963. And it actually, I think, accomplishes everything the silent star doesn't by being a movie actually about the idea. Um, Silent Star depends, I think, overwhelmingly on the sort of, you know, woman of the moon type vibe. Ikari XB1 is literally, uh, you know, almost a plotless story of what will happen to man in space. And it's about uh, interstellar ship. It's the first interstellar ship, the year 2063. They're leaving Earth. They're going to Alpha Centauri. And lots of things happen on their way. So it's sort of, you know, a, a Star Trek episode type vibe. Certainly everyone wearing puffy velour uniforms does not un-Star Trek you as you watch it. It's another movie where there's, um, there, I think this one has a, a Russian or, or Czech commander, but it has an American second officer and a doctor named Anthony Hopkins to completely throw you out of everything and a robot. So it's, uh, it, it's got a lot of things going on. You could imagine it as the pilot for some Czechoslovakian science fiction TV show, but it also really asks philosophical questions. The downside is it is very, very slow in the opening going as we're sort of establishing the normality of space, but you can absolutely see its fingerprints in 2001. I think this and Forbidden Planet are the only science fiction movies that Kubrick took on board when he made 2001, but definitely the DNA of Ikari XB1 is in 2001, and the sort of end with a purely intellectual revelation as opposed to a physical crisis, that I think is actually new in science fiction and does make it worthwhile. I question whether anyone besides Kubrick saw it, because it was not widely screened. It was cut up and, and shot in America as an AIP double summer feature with the wrong ending. But uh, it is absolutely an essential, even if it was not an influential essential, save on Kubrick, obviously. Right. Less than essential, but worth mentioning is X, The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. This is directed by Roger Corman in 1963, with the limitations that any Roger Corman film uh, has. And I think his limitations worked better with his Poe adaptations. This is also in the intersection between not just horror and science fiction, but a cosmic horror, because mm-hmm. it's about a man who, after a scientific accident begins to see too much and that man is played by uh, Ray Milland and has a great sort of kicker 
ending that I think would be more effective if it was at the Twilight Zone length than mm-hmm. at the full feature length. Yeah, but Rayma Land's performance is absolutely what elevates this film. It has that sort of seedy, downbeat vibe that a lot of really great horror movies do, and that sort of a Ray Bradbury, not Ray Bradbury feel, but a Ray Bradbury grittiness to his science fiction horror that Gorman picks up. Yeah, uh, Full Essential. Also, I think what the lesson we're really learning here is that half the science fiction essentials, if not more than half, are also horror films. (laughs) That brings us to The Last Man on Earth, uh, directed by Ubaldo Ragona and Sidney Salco in 1964. And this is an adaptation of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, uh, starring Vincent Price. And so it is a a vampire movie. It is a zombie movie. It is a post-apocalyptic movie and does a surprisingly great job with its limited resources. Of course, once you have Vincent Price, Mm -hmm. your budget for uh, creativity uh, doubles, as we mentioned before with The Fly. And this is one of his films where it's less campy and uh, genuinely uh, disturbing in the best sort of post-apocalyptic way. And I would argue still the best version of this oft-adapted source material. I mean, I, I agree with you. It's a great version and it's essential. I still have a sneaking fondness for the Omega Man, which does, uh, Last Man on Earth sort of does about two thirds of the Richard Matheson story. Omega Man does another two thirds. Overlap between them, you get the Richard Matheson story, I feel. But this is absolutely a terrific movie, and, uh, Vincent Price adds a lot of pathos and humanity to the role that, in fairness, Charlton Heston does not really bother to do with the Omega Man. So, it's a great movie, it's well worth watching, and it is, um, almost hits the mythic level that Matheson's original novel does. It's not quite there, but it's as close as any movie of that book has gotten. And we're going to close uh, this version of the, of the segment in 1964 with one of my very favorites. This is The 10th Victim, or in the original Italian, La Decima Vittima, directed by Elio Petri from 1964. It has uh, Ursula Andress and Marcello Mastriani as rival assassins in a televised assassin game. So it is the precursor to uh, Battle Royale and the Hunger Games. It is also, I think, probably the first great work of satirical science fiction and based on a Robert Sheckley novel, so it has that literary pedigree. It has all of the early 60s mod Italian style you could possibly ask for, the extreme coolness of uh, Marcello and that character. The costume designs uh, themselves are uh, masterpieces. The groovy Italian score by uh, Piero Piccioni is brilliant. And this is uh, just one of my all-time uh, favorite films, period, let alone favorite science fiction films. I have a weird thinness in my filmic vocabulary that is a lot of these early, not early, but early 60s Italian masterpieces. That is, you know, something that I'm, I selfishly am waiting for Doc or somebody to do a good retrospective so I can get all caught up. But I haven't seen The Tenth Victim, but I'll tell you, reading the Wikipedia article and listening to you makes me really want to see The Tenth Victim. It sounds great. It could not be funner. It's definitely on DVD, and I'm sure it's available in other formats and, and well worth tracking down. Uh, so we uh, are going to pick up next time with an even more avant-garde European science fiction film and continue on uh, through the mid-60s.
In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation Ugh! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathe tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to enter that most ill-defined of huts. The uh, hut where we're not quite sure whether we're at the intersection of uh, crank history, uh, fake science, and uh, I don't know. We're Over in there in the corner, though, there's a couple of familiar figures. There's the gray alien and the Nordic alien, and they're uh, sipping a kombucha, but they're wearing uh, sort of beach shorts, and the alien big cat, it's not screaming on the moor. It's at a beach, a beach in Japan, Ken, because beloved backer Joshua Randall wants to know about the giant metal sphere that recently uh, washed up on Enshu Beach, launching a thousand clicks. Now, people were disappointed, I think, when they found out what was really going on. Yeah. And it's our job, of course, to tell them that that's really not what was going on at all. So, uh, Ken, why don't you... Uh, Tell us the, the disappointing true story that people all went and clicked on. Well, um, the, the sphere, the steel or iron, it had rust on it, is 1.5 meters in diameter. So it's big for a sphere. I wouldn't call it giant, but they're, you know, people differ. Enshu Beach, it's as giant you say. If it's an egg. It's just right. regular if it's yeah. a sphere. Just regular if it's a sphere. In the city of Hamamatsu, it had been there for about a month, but it took a month for it to get on Twitter and get reported. And then once they reported it, the authorities came out because they were all panicked about maybe it's a spy thing. Maybe it's a unexploded mine from the war. Maybe it's a very heavy balloon. It could be a very heavy balloon full of cavorites sent from the selenites on the moon. Who can say? And they came out and they looked at it. And not to be a fun ruiner, Robin, not to back the Japanese government in their veil out, but it's a steel mooring boy. Everyone noticed it was a steel mooring boy. People on Twitter said, I can't believe we're an island nation and we didn't know what a steel mooring boy looks like. I'm embarrassed to be Japanese right now. And a steel mooring boy is a hollow steel ball. It floats. You put a cable down to the bottom. It's attached to an anchor or a weight, and it floats there to keep an instrument package in place on the ocean or maybe secure a fishing reef or some other sort of a net type thing. They're very, very common. There was a bunch of them just south of that beach that were used to uh, grow a, a reef for commercial fishermen. And one came loose and floated onto the beach. It was a complete non-story, but only the fun of it being on Twitter gave it a vibe. I will say that the authorities leaned into it by refusing to confirm that it was a mooring boy at all. So good for you, authorities. And then they said... It has been stored for a certain period of time 
and then disposed of. Right. Which is, if you were trying to get people back onto the conspiracy cover-up trail, there is no better thing to say about your mysterious steel ball right. than that. So, so this is obviously for the the third in the trilogy after Shin Godzilla, Shin Ultraman, Shin Mooring Boy. Exactly, right. So well, let's not dilly-dally around with other explanations. It's a kaiju egg. Yeah. It's not clear to us. People whether- on the internet said that it was Godzilla's egg. They were only half right. It's Mecha Godzilla's egg, it's clearly. It's Godzilla's egg. Yeah. Or, you know, possibly a gamma, because of course we know that turtles, you know, if you want to find eggs on a beach, look for the nearest turtle. Or uh, Jai Jaguar. He's a robot. Maybe he lays a robot egg. We don't know. Exactly. So I think the rest of the assignment then, Ken, is the scenario in which the player characters have to heist a kaiju egg from the facility where it is still being stored for a certain period of time. It's not at all been disposed of. Right. And it is in the hands either of feckless bureaucrats who are obviously going to conduct tests on it until it bursts and rampages across the land and is is harmed, or it is in the hands of feckless bureaucrats who are going to be unable to protect it from the evil organization that in parallel is also planning to heist the kaiju egg. Right. It could be the Utani half of Wayland yutani Exactly. And so our group of intrepid characters, I, I guess the first part of this, it's obviously there's an investigative bit where you try and find out what this actually is. You have a pretty strong suspicion, I would think, your concept here is that, you know, you are part of the organization that is involved in kaiju-related activities or is concerned that that's the case. And the initial part of the investigation is to confirm that, yes, of course, the Mooring Boy story is incorrect. You have to discover where exactly the egg is really being stored. And at that point, you also discover the fact that there's uh, probably somebody else trying to get it and use it for their own uh, nefarious purposes I think we can all assume that at some point Chekhov is going to put a a gun on the table in the first act. We know what happens. If there's a kaiju egg coming up on the beach in the first act, Mm -hmm. we know there's going to be a kaiju in in the third act. But your job is to go and uh, bond with the kaiju, perhaps taking, you know, little fairy creatures or, of course, the the usual fallback with the kaiju, which is an adorable kid, in order to bond with it before everything goes, uh, goes wrong. So where do we develop the scenario from there again. I mean, I feel like that you've got a lot of different possibilities. I like the idea of the Utani Corporation trying to steal the egg for their own horrible biotechnological behavior. I like the idea of there being a Japanese government bureau that studies the kaiju. I think it's more fun if you don't work for them, because if you work for them, then you, it, you know, the investigation is short-circuited. You're already there. You're already there, right? <laughs> You're there with the egg. That's not a heist. I, I think you could be, you know, one of the players could be the inside man from the kaiju agency who says, oh, man, we have got a big security problem here. They're talking about hatching it because of the tensions with China. That's not going to work well. Also, we know that someone is trying to steal the kaiju because of this, that, and the other thing. We know it's you. I want you to steal the kaiju for me. And they're like, oh, this, that, the other thing, that wasn't us. We were doing another thing. That's the Utani spoor. And that's what sets it off and makes it a crisis instead of a, well, we'll get around to it, you know, for a certain period of time. So you can have the inside man. You can have the uh, team of, of do-gooders, which might or might not include a psychic child. And then they have to heist the kaiju egg. I think that the investigation, you can find like sublimed bits of, of uh, steel shell on the beach and you look at it and it's like, this is an eggshell. It's just made of steel. 
this was a cover-up, this was a fun ruiner, this was a veil-out. And so, you know, as you're investigating, then you have to figure out which kaiju it is. We've given you three possible answers, but maybe you have your own kaiju that plays giant steel eggs. And then, rather than bring the kaiju onto the beach, I feel like that is the thing you're desperately trying to avoid. The reason you're stealing it is not so that you can use it for your own vile purposes, but the reason you're stealing is so you can throw it back in the ocean and convince the kaiju mom not to come up and get its egg back, because that is what would be a disaster, is if the little town of Hamamatsu is stomped by an angry lady Mechagodzilla, right? I think that would be terrible. Right. You're trying to reunite it either. I don't know how aquatic Mechagodzilla is, but let's not. Until February, we didn't know what laid eggs, Robin. There's so much we don't know about Mechagodzilla. But at any point, you're trying to get it to the the monster island. Right. Or the the sea. Or Or the mother. Right. Wherever. Right. Yeah. So I think there's all that gives us actually enough material for like a two or three scenario arc. Right. Because there's finding out that there's a kaiju egg. There is finding the psychic kid who can talk to it. And keeping him away from the Yutani Corporation, mm-hmm. there is actually infiltrating the the base and you know casing the heist. There's the heist itself, and then there's the big action sequence where you're getting the egg to mom, and that can get you your big kaiju appearance at the end. Yeah, especially not, if you're on Monster Island. There's other yeah. monsters there. So either you're getting it to Monster Island or to the beach, and so basically it's the end is a chase sequence where you're trying to get to uh, Mama Kaiju uh, in time. Uh, for her to happily receive uh, either the egg or the freshly hatched offspring. And then, of course, you know, you can just stand aside and watch as she stops flat the Utani Corporation and, you know, the the more evil of the feckless bureaucrats. Right. Or you can even help, right? You can, if you know that she's enraged by a certain smell, you can make sure to spray it on their car or something. Right. You'd find out ways to uh, work with or utilize the proper mom when you're researching the mom, and then you discover... Or dad, it could be a seahorse. I don't want to be, you know, gender specific about this. Yeah, but we don't even know where, where Mechagodzilla is on that spectrum. Right, exactly. Anyway, the larger point being that you've been researching the parent kaiju, and so you know their triggers and the things that are going to send them into a flying rage. Mostly you're trying to avoid those things, but at some point it will occur to, I think, any player group that the best place for the kaiju angering chemical is on the Utani Corporation uh, black helicopter, right? Right. And in mid-heist, you might have discovered that the Utani Corporation has a weapon that they think they can use to neutralize the mom or dad kaiju. And uh, it's your job to, you know, shoot that with a rifle. And that can be the precipitating incident that allows you to contribute to the uh, exciting stomping and smashing that, that ensues afterwards. Exactly. Yeah. If you're worried that no one will behave irresponsibly enough to cause a kaiju attack, that's why NPCs exist, literally. <laughs> Your players will be very, very disappointed if there's not some right. some stomping, but righteous stomping if they if they do. Mm-hmm. It right. Well, we don't want to wreck our big finish with a bunch of footnotes, so it's time for us to uh, stomp on out of this podcast, but we'll be back a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep the zoo that is this podcast unplundered. Alongside such wildlife-friendly backers as... Ludovic Chabant. Mark Kevin Hall. Michael Manival. Monster Talk. And Neil Dalton. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch. 
at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest design, Bring Me the Incompetent Laggard File. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>